The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. All right, now, uh, let's jump into this here. I have some things for you guys. Let's see here. Um, I don't know if anyone would need this one. Probably three or so weeks ago. And I only have two of them here, so. Oh, is that the one you ran over? Um, I don't know. But this is the one on the Millennium. Oh, I only had one. And it's not even scheduled. This is the one we did on the Millennium, like, three, four weeks ago, where I went over four more prevalent views of the so-called thousand years, the so-called Millennium, rather. Um, does anyone need that? Is there pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial? Uh, and then there's the transmillennial or past millennial. I, I really like that. And then I give several scriptures showing in Jesus' ministry where in the first century it teaches the binding of Satan. Like John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now the prince, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Washington 2, 15, he disarmed uh, principalities, powers. Hebrews 2, 14, he destroyed him or rendered powerless him who had the power of death, the devil. So just, there's lots of verses like that. I have more of those not up here, but uh, I can print more, in other words. All right, there was one, I think, last week that I didn't get to you guys. Um, I hope there's enough. I ran out of printer ink or something this morning. But, okay, this one, let's see here. Oh, I don't know if this was, but this will be a good one anyways. All right, this one is Scripture which up top here, it says scriptures which place, and then number one, the biblical last days, slash, or also known as the end of the age, in the first century, or in a first century context. So there are several, probably 15 verses here, which undeniably put the last days in the first century. Um, so let's hand that out, and then we'll go over that just briefly here, maybe. Um, probably have about 10 or so there, which or 12, probably not enough. Uh, of course, we will get more. Maybe couples can take one for the for today, and then we can get more to you. Mm-hmm. 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 And then I have one that I but I just want to use it for a moment. Yes, later. Yeah, don't forget, Ryan Lestrange, this Friday night, 7 o'clock, uh, it's going to be a great time. His wife, Joy, we were super blessed to find out she's going to be with him. Um, Ryan, I know, was just preaching in South Africa, and he got back into the States briefly, and then I think he, I think he's going to the UK after us, or shortly thereafter, uh, to do... Uh, a lot of ministry and, uh, over there, so um, so we were blessed to, to be able to get Ryan. And then uh, it'll be a great service. So uh, there will no doubt be incredible prophetic ministry and uh, ministry of the Spirit and healings and miracles and all that good stuff. So as I say sometimes, uh, bring friends, bring your family, bring your devils. You know, it's kind of a joke, but kind of. So, uh, but that was a registration thing, and we filled up, so there's no more. I guess if you know someone that didn't register that, like, wants to come, the only thing we 
presumably, because, you know, always, inevitably, a person or whore won't show up that signed up. So there might be, at the same time, I mean, we can do that room there. It's a bit of an overflow room. Ryan is plenty loud enough to hear him. So it'll be good. Uh, thank you, Orlo. 7 o'clock this Friday. Now, uh, let's see here. The biblical last days on your paper there. Number one, if you see at the top there, biblical last days are the end of the age. Um, did everybody who needed one get one? I mean, we'll just quickly, I'm not going to do this exhaustively at the moment. That'll just be for your own thing. Uh, you got a couple of verses there at the beginning in Genesis and Numbers. Uh, Jacob called his sons together, and then he said, what will befall you in the last days? And then literally in the Hebrew there, it's the end of the days. All right? So Jacob tells his sons. Israel tells the tribes of Israel what will befall them in their last days. Uh, and then you see at the very end there, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And of course, that's what happened in 70 AD when the Great Dispersion. Acts, look at Acts chapter, or, or look, well, look at the next one too. Uh, he says, uh, now behold, I go unto my people in numbers there. Come therefore, and I will advertise to you what this people shall do to your people in the latter days. Same word in the Hebrew, the end of the days. And then notice what he connects to the last days here, verse 17. I will see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There will come a star out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. That's a very renowned messianic scripture. So he's saying the last days would be when the Messiah comes and stands on the earth uh, as a man. So, And then what will happen? Destroy the corners of Moab, uh, destroy the children of Shem. Uh, then you have Acts chapter 2 here. Peter standing up with the eleven, the Pentecost, lifted up his voice and said to them, and then he goes through there, and look at the part that's underlined. He says, but this is that, this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel 28 to 32. So he didn't say in 2,000 years it'll be that. He said, this is that. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it's a sad thing that we've let uh, a less than 200-year-old doctrine start telling us that every time there's an eclipse or every time there's a meteor shower or every time there's a whatever, that somehow that's fulfilling this. Well, you, it can't be fulfilling it every time there's a blip in the sky. At some point, prophecy has to mean something and actually be fulfilled. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Peter said, this is that. And then, you know, he quotes Joel, and the sun's dark, and the moon's turned to blood, and the stars fall to the sky. That's lights out for Old Covenant Israel, in other words. Matthew 3, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom is synonymous with millennium reign. It's the same thing with theologians' understanding. So, Matthew 4, the kingdom's at hand. Matthew 23, all these things on this generation. Next page, look at, first, look at the top one on the next page. He says, Paul's speaking here. He says, now these things happen to them as an example. Now notice what he says here, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, they were written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul said he lived at the end, the, it's the ends of the ages, it's the the back end of the old, the front end of the new, the ends of the ages. Look at Galatians 4. Look at this next verse. When the fullness of time came. When did Jesus come? In the fullness of time, or the last days. Hebrews 1-2. God used to speak by the prophets in different ways, but in these last days, the author of Hebrews said he was living in the last days. 
Hebrews 9.26. But now once, at the end of the age, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did Jesus appear and put away sin? At the end of the age. Uh, let's see here, verse 1 Peter 1.20. Uh, Jesus was manifest in these last times for you. Uh, next one we reference a lot, verse, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. So right around 64, 65 AD, Peter said the end of all things is at hand. Not it's at hand, pause tape, 2,000 thus far years in the future. Uh, the inspired apostle Peter around 65 AD said the end of all things is at hand. Uh, jumping down to 1 John 2.18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. Before the cross, nobody knew the day or the hour, but after the cross, the Spirit of God was poured out, led the inspired apostles to bring forth doctrine in the church. John here says it is the last hour. So they went from last days to last time to last hour. All right? uh, and then he says, we know it is because many antichrists have appeared. And then he, we know he tells us in 1 John, the Antichrist is any spirit that denies Jesus is the Messiah. So it's not a man from Europe who's going to take over the world. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, things which must soon take place, for the time is near. Uh, the word soon there, sometimes people say, well, it's quickly, and it means when it happens, it'll be quick. The problem with that is it doesn't mean that in the Greek. It means it's, it's near proximity. It's close at hand. So it doesn't mean it'll be fast when it happens. It means it's close now. So uh, things which must soon take place. And boy, I'm involved in this. Look at the next one, though. The second section is think scriptures that show the coming of the Lord was also at the end of the age or the end of the last days in the first century. Look at Matthew 10, 23. Jesus, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next Why? For truly I say to you, you will not finish going to the city of Israel until the Son of Man Parousias, or comes, his judgment coming on Old Covenant Israel. Now you see that, right? Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Look at the next verse. Son of Man is going to repay, uh, uh, come in glory his Father, and then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it's very bizarre to me, and it never made sense to me. People say, oh, well, that's talking about the next chapter, the transfiguration, because Jesus appeared in a glorious way. Well, did Jesus come and repay every man according to his deeds in the transfiguration? Of course not. There was only a few people there, you know, so obviously not talking about that. Next verse. Uh, Tell us when these things will happen, sign of your coming in the end of the age. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not take place till all these things, all these things take place. Then next verse, uh, he tells the priesthood, you will see the Son of Man. And that's a messianic term. Uh, can't go through all these. Uh, let me show you one more, though. Look down at Hebrews 10, 37, last one on the second page, or the page you have there now, the last one. For yet in a very little while, 67-ish AD, the author of Hebrews says, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So there is no 2,000-year gap. There's no pause. There's no prophetic parentheses. There's no delay. Literally says here, he will not delay. <laughs> he, uh, he is coming in a very little while. It's the word mellow in Greek, and it means about to happen. Right? 
Just like in the uh, book of Acts, Paul said there is, uh, of chapter 17 maybe, he said there is about to be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, in the book of Acts, Paul said that. Look at this next one in James 5, sober. Therefore be patient. Next page, uh, last page. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Well, James, why are you telling these Jewish Christians to be patient for the coming of the Lord? Keep reading. He goes on through, be patient until the early and latter rains. Then he says this, you too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you, you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. All right? Come at the coming of the Lord there. And then there's these other verses in Revelation where it says uh, he's coming quickly, coming quickly, coming quickly, in the Greek, without delay. And then you see Revelation 1-7 there, it says, Every eye will see him, those who pierced him. First century context, quoting from the book of Zechariah, right? Chapter 10, I think. So it doesn't say every person on planet Earth. It says those who pierced him, all right? In other words, context, first century. It says all the tribes of, which is Israel, of the earth, that's land in the Greek, the land of Israel will mourn at his judgment coming, so it gets to be amen. Does anyone need this other one I have here? I got it. Okay, Tamara, can you uh, make copies? Yeah, I just, I think I ran out of ink or something, or uh, it was telling me the ink was low, I don't know. Kara can slap it and make it work, probably. Now, and this is the one I'm really struggling with, um, all right, got it. This one here, this is the one from last week that I didn't have last week. So, couples preferably take one of past. This is uh, Revelation part 15, where we went through chapter 20 last week. This goes through like um, when Jesus, the messenger, comes down and binds the devil. I give you two scriptural examples from First and Second Peter. Uh, where it talks about demons being bound. So that's not a foreign concept. That's a very scriptural concept. And there's others. I just only put so much on one thing, you know. Thank you, Ola. Uh, again, up top there, Revelation part 15, which is chapter 20 continued. <clears throat> yeah, we want everyone to have one of these. I didn't just do this for fun. So, except for if we don't have enough, let me know. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. This is very helpful. Thank you. Um, just because we cover so much when we do this. Um, you see on the first page where other scriptures about demons being bound at the end of the times. Uh, but then the next part, Revelation 24 through 6, you see uh, two references to the thousand-year reign. And this is another view, which is not on the other sheet that I gave you. I gave you one week previously with four millennial views, and there's more. But I have a quote here from John Wesley, who pointed out that there are two separate and distinct thousand years mentioned. That's another view called by 
millennialism. Well, there's two different that you know. So there's a lot of views on this stuff, right? Eschatology is the one area in church history where there's never been like a church council that just said this is it. This is what the church believes because it's it is quite the topic, right? Some people call it a minefield, you know. So there's a lot, you know. So and I think that's a good thing, but. Uh, there have been general ideas that were believed. Um, partial preterism was by far the majority view of church history. Uh, nonetheless, let's see here. Cover all this right now. I have the stuff about the mockers and uh, from Second Peter there. And then we got oh yeah, the last page where Satan's thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. The word brimstone there. We covered that. Greek word theon means God or divine or divinity or uh, different references can be associated with it. In other words, Satan and apostate Israel in the first century were thrown into the consuming fire of God's judgment, the fire which God himself is. Our God is a consuming fire. And fire is, it is what it is, but it does to us how we relate to it. If I treat it with respect in the proper manner, it will warm me, it will comfort me, it will provide shelter for my family, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I can cook food with it, but if I abuse it or misuse it, uh, it burns, it hurts. So but doesn't it purify with fire too? No, he doesn't. No, I'm just joking. yeah. <laughs> there's purification, so yeah, there's a lot of things, and uh, the dross was purged out, the apostate, the leaven was uh, purified, purged out of God's true people there in the first century. Um, so yes, another uh, very good point there. Okay. Only so much time in a day. Thank you, Jesus. Have one more here or something? There we go. All right. Yes. And this is the one today that I only have like four or five copies of when I ran out of ink. Um, which stinks. Ended up next week. It works better. Yeah. I have three. Fight over it. Fight. <laughs> Carol might be able to do it right now. I just said the ink was low. I didn't want to do it. I have time to do anything about it. So, okay, maybe she can do some things there. But I will start from that, and you can follow along. I have pretty much most of that up here, at least in the scripture, so you don't have to worry about that part of it. There's just a couple of extra little things there. But uh, Now, Revelation 21. We're going to start there, Revelation chapter 21. Which is Revelation part 16 for the two people out of three that got one thus far. Uh, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Now, again, uh, we always want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Amen? Amen. We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And, there, and that word earth, again, the word gay in Greek means land, the land of Israel. First heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. All right. Uh, as we've mentioned before, and I'm going to show you some, some things here in just a moment. But let me say this. The Jews, uh, even this day, but uh, probably much more so at this time, and throughout their ancient history, the Jews called their temple heaven and earth. All right? So, heaven and earth passed away. Now, let me show you a few things from Scripture here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 here. Notice this. 
Check this out. A few verses here in Matthew 5, 17. Now, notice the context. Jesus says, Do not think I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And thank God he did. Now, so what's the context? The law. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Mosaic system, but to fulfill it. So it's like if you if you had a mortgage and you you know let's say you still owe whatever twenty thousand dollars, well you don't just take what you owe and just rip it up and say thanks but no thanks I'm not. You don't abolish it. You have to fulfill your obligation. Well Jesus fulfilled the law system. All right on our behalf. So he didn't abolish. He fulfilled. Look at the next verse. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth, temple, pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Notice the context. Jesus relates heaven and earth to the law, which was extremely common. We looked at 2 Peter 3 last week when Peter talked about heaven and earth was destroyed and heaven and earth was about to be destroyed in his day, the temple. Um, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke. Now, of course, he's not talking our modern, western, 2,000 years removed mind assumes wrongly he's talking about the physical cosmos. Um, if you were talking about the physical creation, then we're, we would still be under the Mosaic Law. You understand? Until heaven and earth pass away, if he's talking physical creation, which he's not, it's a Hebrew idiom for the temple, then we're still under the law system. Because until heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or tittle, not one stroke of the law will in any way uh, pass or be gone or uh, whatever. Uh, of course, he's not. The verse before it, don't think I come to abolish the law and the prophets. Because until heaven and earth passes away, which to the Jew was the temple. Next verse, verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. Law, still talking law and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he will be called great uh, in the kingdom of heaven. So the law is the context there. And then he goes, he just goes on here about uh, righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. Uh, verse 21, you've, uh, he's still talking about the law stuff here. Now, let me move on from that. Turn with me, which I have it up here, but if you want to turn there, turn with me to Isaiah 65. This is going to be a little bit challenging for some reason. Um, it always is, even though it's as plain as day, and I'm not trying to sound like a jerk. If I did, I apologize. Uh, but it's pretty clear here what we're about to look at in Isaiah 65. We'll start in verse 17. Isaiah was a pre-exile prophet uh, before the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple for the first time in 586 BC. All right, and he was he and Jeremiah, uh, others Ezekiel were prophesying about the soon coming judgment in their own day. Um, 
the destruction of their temple and their system and be taken to other countries and all this kind of stuff. Now, Isaiah 65, verse 17. He says, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, a new system, a new temple, a new system. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. For I, behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Now you realize, of course, Revelation 21 is quoting this. This is where a new heaven and a new earth comes from. Again, John didn't make it up or didn't get it from the science fiction movie. Scripture interprets scripture. Book Revelation is uh, uh, inspired plagiarism. You know what I mean? Now, anointed plagiarism. So this is where he gets this. I create a new heaven and a new earth. Now notice what he says. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad, verse 18, and rejoice forever in what I create. Now, without a preach, nonetheless. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now, pay attention. There will no longer be uh, heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Now notice this, verse 20. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. In other words, during the, when the Babylonians came in, at this, at this time in Jewish history, and when the Romans came in, many, you know, hundreds of years later in the first century A.D., they're coming in and they're killing without prejudice. Man, woman, young, old, doesn't matter, all right? So people were being slaughtered. Same thing here. No longer will there be an infant who lives a few days, or an old man who does not, now notice this, or an old man who does not live out his days. Now what's the next phrase say? Go ahead, kid. Go down. For the child shall die a hundred years old. Stop. Read the first five words. Real loud. For the child shall die. Read it again. Just those five words. For the child shall die. All right. Now, do you see that and hear that? I don't know how your translation words it. Isaiah 65, verse 20. For in her translation, the child will die. Or up here as it reads, the youth will die. You see that, right? Say yes. yes. The child will die. So in the new heaven and earth, people die. That's not me twisting anything, that's not me making something fit my theology, that's scripture, word for word. <laughs> the child will die. So in what's called the new heaven and new earth, people die. Alright? Of 100 years. In other words, you'll live a good long life. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of as accursed. Look at the next verse. So, so well, let me say this. In this context, there's also a consciousness of a curse. You see that? They'll be thought of as a curse. Now, for us, you know, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law because Christ was made a curse for us. So in our reality, we are curseless ground, right? Amen. Look at the next verse, verse 21. They will build houses. So there will be construction. There will be labor of hands. There will be homes to live in, in what's called a new heaven and a new earth. You see that, right? 
Yes, Jordan. They will build houses and inhabit them. Look at this. They will plant vineyards, food, gathering food, sustenance, garden, labor, work of the hands. All right, in the new heaven and new earth. They will not build in another inhabit, which is really specifically the, the foreign, you know, the Babylonians and uh, much later the Romans uh, coming in and just taking what they want, in other words. Uh, they will not build in another inhabit. They will not plant in another eat. Whereas the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. So in, thank you, love. So in the new heaven. Oh, I stole your stapler. Oh, you use the other one? Um, so the second page, you're going to have to practice hearing Pray the voice of God. Because, yeah, it went on the wrong side of the row, but it's just the first <laughs> line. So, everybody wants to. And it was just yellow. That was low. It looks right. Oh, oh. Ah. Okay. Good job. There we go. There we go. Thank you. There we go. That's perfect. <coughs> Thank you, everyone. So, one, uh, let's see here. Verse 22. Let's see here. That's out on here. Build houses. Okay, so here we go. So it says uh, on down here, notice it says, in Isaiah 65, it says, they will not labor in vain, so there's work. Now notice this. And they will not, oh, and it's up here as well, verse 23. They will not bear children for calamity. So notice, in the, in what he calls spiritually a new heaven and a new earth, there is marriage and making love and conception and giving birth. Less, as far as I know, that's how kids come. <laughs> I don't think we've switched over to the swan. Is it swans? That storks delivering them yet. So I think it's still the old-fashioned way. He that has ears to hear. Hallelujah. So notice there again. They will not bear children for calamity. For their offspring are blessed by the Lord. Amen. Woo! Hallelujah. Verse 24, it will also come to pass that they'll, before they call, I will answer. While they're speaking, I will hear. God's in us. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures that explain this next and last verse, verse 25. This is one of those verses that gets, in our modern Western thinking, gets changed a little. He says, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. For some reason, regardless of all of scripture, we take this and we make it mean like a literal you know, wolf will hang out with a lamb and they'll play poker and they'll high five and he won't eat him. This is scripture. Interpret scripture with scripture. All right. So in the book of Jeremiah, 
in the book of Isaiah, the Babylonians are the ones that are referred to. There's different words. There's, I believe there's jackals, and then here you have wolves. In other words, the enemies and Israel, they were the prey. Now just go to the New Testament where Jesus talked this way. I am the shepherd, you're the sheep. Or he's the lamb that was slain. Or be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. Talking all of these all of these talking about people. So this isn't some thing where wolves hang out with lambs and play poker and smoke cigars and high five and where we don't eat steak anymore. Anything like that. All right? The lion will eat straw like the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. They'll do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain in Israel. All right? So, um, so we see that in the new heaven and new earth, there's working, there's homes, there's death, there's making love and giving birth. There's all these things in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we realize that when John in Revelation 21 talks about this new heaven and new earth and there's no longer any sea, he's talking covenantal or temple language. Now, we read Matthew 5 on your paper there. Look down there where it says, quote from Josephus. And I, you know who Josephus is, the, the Jewish historian who lived during this time, a priest uh, who was taken captive. Now here's some uh, very good tidbits here from the very many, but this is just one little section from Josephus who said this. As to the holy house itself, the temple of course, which was placed in the midst of the inmost court, that most sacred part of the temple, it was ascended to by 12 steps. This is a little wordy, but you know. Um, and in front, its height and its breadth were equal to each 100 cubits, though it was behind 40 cubits narrower. For on its front, it had what may be styled shoulders on each side that passed 20 cubits further. Now, now notice this next section. Its first gate was 70 cubits high and 25 cubits broad, but it cannot be excluded from any place. Oh, I, I skipped it, sorry. Uh, but this gate had no doors, for it represented the universal visibility of heaven. So he's talking about the temple, and notice he's describing certain parts of what the temple looked like, in other words. He says, uh, I butchered a little there, I skipped a line. He says, the first gate was 70 cubits and high and 25 cubits broad, but it had no doors, for it represented the universal visibility of heaven. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. This is temple language. Wouldn't have to explain this to a Jew. He says, its front was covered with gold all over, and you know, streets of gold and purity and all of that. He says, and through it, the first part of the house, the more inward did all of it appear, which as it was very large, so did all the parts about the more inward gate appear to shine to those that saw them. But then as the entire house was divided into two parts within, it was only the first part of it that was open to our view. Its height extended all along to 90 cubits in height. Its length was 50 cubits. Its breadth was 20. Now notice this, but the gate which was at this end of the first part of the house was, as we've already observed, covered with gold, as was its whole wall all about, 
it had also golden vines from above it, from which hung clusters of grapes, hung as tall as a man's height. So here in the temple, certain parts represented the heavens. Then you have this part here about the clusters of grapes. What did we read there in Isaiah 65? You won't plant vineyards and others come in and take your goods. All right? He says, but then this house, it was divided into two parts. And then you don't have the first line, so uh, which it wasn't a, a very important part. Does your next, does your first line on the next page start with N16 in breadth? That's fine. So now notice this, we're almost to the parts I really want to look at here. They're underlined. He says 16 in breadth, but before the doors there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. Now notice what he says. It was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue. Now that's interesting because the Babylonians were the ones that destroyed the temple that existed prior to this one in Josephus' day, nonetheless. Embroidered with blue, fine linen, scarlet, purple, and a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation. In other words, these colors were beautiful, but they also meant something spiritually. That's what he's saying. He said, but was a kind of image of what? The universe. For by the scarlet, there seemed to be enigmatically signified fire. What did Peter say in 2 Peter 3? The, the, temp, the temple at that time would be destroyed by? Fire. He said, by the fine flax of the earth. So you've got heaven and earth references here in the temple. By the blue of the air and the purple of the sea. So here in, you have different representations in the temple of the sea. What did John say in Revelation 21-1? New heaven and a new earth. There was no longer any sea. Temple language. And we know in Revelation the sea very often represents the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles would cross land and sea to get to Jerusalem. A major world class city of commerce and business and wealth and so on. All right, But in Christ Jesus... There's neither Jew nor Greek or Jew nor Gentile. There's only the new creation. You understand? So he's tearing down this temple system that divides between the in and the out. In the new covenant, everyone's invited in. Hallelujah. All right? Two of them having their colors, the foundation of this resemblance, but fine flax and the purple have their own origin for that foundation, the earth producing the one and the sea producing the other. Just jump down to the, uh, or look at the next part. This curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens. Uh, let's jump on down here he, to the last underlined part. He says, now the heaven, uh, now the seven lamps signified the seven planets. For so many there were springing out of the candlestick. Then he says, now the twelve loaves, you know the showbread in the temple. Now, the uh, 12 loaves that were upon the table signified the circle of the zodiac and the year. But the altar of incense, by its 13 kinds of sweet-smelling spices, with which the sea replenished it. All right? So here you have another reference to the sea in the temple. All right? Heaven, earth, and sea, all here in the temple. <coughs> signified, and I just love this last statement, signified... That God is the possessor of all things that are both in uninhabitable and habitable parts of the earth. 
So in other words, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The devil does not own planet earth. Amen. As long as we believe that lie, we just hand it over to him because we think it's his anyways. He says, and they are all to be dedicated to his use. It was a little wordy, but having it in front of you there, I think hopefully you can follow me pretty well. Joseph, this is just one place where Josephus repeatedly refers to the temple as heaven and earth and the sea. Heaven, earth, sea. Heaven, earth, sea. This is temple language. And here you have a first century priest telling us all of this heaven and earth and sea references when it comes to the temple. The next thing here is a statement by a guy named Paul Pinley. He's not an ancient Jewish priest. He's alive and well today. Paul Pinley, on your hand out there. According to Josephus, two parts of the tabernacle were approachable and open to all, but, not, uh, but one was not. He explains that in doing so, Moses signifies the earth and the sea, according to Josephus, since these two are accessible to all, the outer court and the inner court. Then he says, the third portion was reserved for God alone because heaven is accessible, inaccessible to men. And then he gives you the place there, Antiquities 3, 181, where Josephus actually said this. Um, then he talks about the veil. He goes through some other things here. just don't have time to read all this. But, um, down, he says, just jump down a few lines here, he's, uh, if you can find it here. He says, from heaven and earth, inside the temple, you looked out at the sea surrounding the world. Why? Because the ancients believed the earth had one giant landmass, which is surrounded by the sea. The temple reflected that cosmology. Um, and then he says, the accessible section of the temple and the surrounding courts embodied both the landmass and the sea. The most holy places were heaven where God's presence resided. There's a lot more we can say about that. I just wanted to give you these few tidbits here uh, from Scripture and from Josephus, who's such a helpful resource to us, that show you the temple was emphatically referred to as heaven and earth by the Jews, and heaven and earth and sea are temple language. And that's what John's talking about here. I saw a new heaven and earth. In other words, a new temple system. And in this new temple system, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. You understand that? It's temple language. He's the chief cornerstone. But we're the living stones that make up the holy temple of God in the new creation. Amen. In the new covenant, uh, the, the city of God, the, the, the temple, it's a people, not a place, not a building. But we know even from the Old Testament, uh, where God speaks out uh, to David that he says, what, you think a building can contain me? I, he said, I created the heavens and the vastness of the heavens. You think a building, that, that's nice, David. boy, But no, I'm gone. So your little building, I appreciate you're trying to honor me in your little peanut mind. I get it. But no, I'm gone. And so, but in this, to, to God, we're, we're, we are the temple where he resides. Right. You understand? Right. Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. He's the Holy of Holies, and he's taken up residence within us, right? Now, let's look on here in verse 2 in Revelation 21, and I hope this is okay. I hope it's not too laborious for you. Um, there's just a lot of information here, and I wish I would have given you guys handouts for every uh, one of these that we've done, but um, I did it, so forgive me. I'll read it. 
He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. All right? Once again, verse 2, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. And this is, uh, you know, sometimes you, we talk about the bride of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all these things. Uh, if you look at your paper there, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. He says, but you, at the bottom of the page, Hebrews 12, 22, he says, but you, let me put it up here for you. Notice this, you have come to Mount Zion, which is, he's taking this from like Isaiah chapter 2 and the scriptures there about the last days. Uh, you have come to Mount Zion and what? To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now notice that. Hebrews 12, 22, 2,000 years ago, the author of Hebrews says, you have come. Not one day in the future you will. You have come, all right, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, interpret scripture with scripture. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You are a city set on a hill. You understand? All right, so we interpret scripture with scripture. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the new creation people. The, the new Jerusalem, or the new city of peace, is not a place. It's a people. Jesus said, my peace, I leave with you. Mm -hmm. All right? So we've got the peace of God. We are uh, representatives. And Jesus talked about, even to his disciples there in their, in their ministry, uh, you know, when you go into a home, let your, if it's worthy, let your peace remain upon it. So we have we are the city of God's peace. All right? Can you can you see that? Does that make sense to you? Now, he says, Yet once more I will shake not, not only earth, but also the heavens. Temple. Um, so that the only thing left uh, will be the things which cannot be shaken. Now, so in Hebrews 12, there we see he says, You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Next portion there, Galatians 4. Verse 21, he says, and I'll have it up here. He says, tell me, Galatians 4, 21, tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was through the promise. Then he says, this is speaking allegorically. For these women represent two covenants. Galatians 4.24. They represent two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, in other words, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now look at verse 25. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So he was saying Mount Sinai, where the law was given, where the, where the people of God 
Uh, it's a long story. We don't have time to cover it all right now, Exodus 19 and 20, but where they basically requested a law instead of a relationship with God, and God honored their request. Um, they became enslaved to a legal system instead of enraptured in a relationship with a living, loving God, all right? Even though they had types and shadows and some good forms, you know, but um, nonetheless, it corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So when Galatians was written, Paul is saying, Jerusalem at this time in the first century is like Sinai was there. All right? Keep reading. But the Jerusalem which is above, heavenly Jerusalem, in other words, is free and she is our mother. We are uh, children of freedom. Amen? Yeah. So we won't read the rest of these here. You can uh, do that sometime. Now, on your paper there, we already read Revelation 21, verse 3. But it's on your paper there. It says, He heard from a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. There will be his people. God himself will be among them. Quoting from Ezekiel 37, which is on your paper there. Ezekiel 37. I'll start in verse 23. He says, They will no longer defile themselves with their idols, with their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. Woo! Aren't you glad he has? Yeah. Hallelujah. And will cleanse them. And they will be my people. And I will be their God. Which is what John is quoting here in uh, Revelation 21.3. Now, moving on in uh, Ezekiel, he says, My servant David will be king over them. That's a reference to the Messiah, of course. Um, going And I have that on your paper there, uh, where it says, David, in Ezekiel 37, 37, is a reference to the Messiah, taken from the very well-known promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God sends Nathan to tell David that you will not build me a house that endures forever, but your seed will. And that's why in many places in Scripture, Jesus calls himself, even in Revelation, the root and the offspring of David. That's why in the Gospels, someone would say, Jesus, son of David, that was saying, Messiah, you're the seed of David who will have an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting temple. We are that enduring, everlasting kingdom and temple and spiritual city which cannot be shaken. All right? Now, they will have one king and one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. This new covenant law of love. They will live on the land that I gave to Israel, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. Now that's the spiritual promise, because if you go again back to Galatians, don't turn there, but in Galatians, uh, Paul makes it a big point to say that <coughs> Jesus is the true promise seed of Abraham. All right? Um, so Jesus is the fulfillment. He's our land of rest. He's our Sabbath rest piece of real estate, if you will. All right? So in Joshua, the promised land flowing with milk and honey was a type and shadow of the true rest that we have in Jesus, where we cease from our works to save us, and we let his finished work be our place of our abode. Am I making sense? Okay. Forever, and David... Uh, my servant will be their prince forever. Verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. 
Now notice this, it will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst. Temple language. Forever. Jesus said, John 14, I will send the comforter and he will remain with you forever. Aren't you glad? My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuaries in their midst forever. Now, one more, at least one more part here on your handout. This is another one of those, like the lion and the lamb stuff, which we explained. Um, but one more scripture here, Revelation 21.4. We'll wrap up here with this. So you, so you can't lift a verse out of its setting and then, and then try to uh, make it mean its own thing. You know what I mean? So all these other verses are new covenant, new creation, uh, new covenant temple, spiritual city, heavenly city, spiritual city language. So you can't take any of these verses and you, you understand what I'm saying and misapply them. Uh, take, them take them, yeah, take them out of context. Now, verse four, he says, "He will wipe uh, away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death." There will no longer be any kind of mourning or crying or pain for the former things or the first things have passed away. All right? Um, it's just one of those things where all through the book of Revelation, um, I heard one person explain it this way, and I thought it was a very good point. Is that a lot of times, like if you had a painting, and it's this majestic piece of art, you know, but you got to look at the composite whole. But if you fixate on one little detail, I wonder what that was for. Why did he put that there? Why did uh, Picasso, what's that part supposed to mean? What did that represent? Why is that? But you got to take it within its composite whole. Mm -hmm. All right? So you can't just, and so in Revelation, you I, you know, you could teach the whole thing, man, as we have been. But somebody will, there's always one part that's like, well, what about the da 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 da? And it's because we've been trained with this modern Western wooden literalism. All right? Instead of getting into the mindset of the ancient Jewish people. All right? Uh, John, who wrote this, of course, and from the ancient Old Testament scriptures, where he got his material from. All right? So this is covenantal language, temple language. All right? Now, we already read in Isaiah 65, where Isaiah said, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be death. All right? There will be childbearing and making love and conception, birth, work of the hands, living in homes, death, all these things he, he said would be in the new heaven and earth. Now, so he says here, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, pain, for the former things have passed away. Let's interpret scripture with scripture. Now, before we turn to, or I guess you, before we turn to Isaiah 28 here to wrap up, think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very well-known scripture. If any man be in Christ, what is he? A new, a new creation, which Revelation uses cosmic creation language to explain covenantal creation realities. All right? So, um, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. So here's old things. The person I was apart from 
Jesus. All right? All these old things have passed away. Um, I guess let's look at Isaiah here uh, and wrap this up. Chapter 28. Let me show you this. Again, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Isaiah 28. And it's a beautiful thing when in Jesus those old things do pass away. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, before, of course, before I knew the Lord, you know, my, my addiction history and all of that, you know, I couldn't imagine, could, I'm telling you, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe you've been there. I literally, I couldn't fathom going any time without drinking or being high or something to detach me as much as possible from reality. You get from the, the, the death that was from the darkness, from the total lack of anything good that was on the inside of me. All right? Um, so I had to have something. But when I met the Lord, let's see, even there, there's another thing where we, we interpret Scripture properly. Jesus, uh, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. All right? I'll give him living waters, and he will never thirst again. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't interpret that as physical, literal water, and I'll never be thirsty again. Well, I must not really know Jesus, because I, I, I still get thirsty every day. <laughs> of course not. But we take things like Revelation and do it that way. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, if that verse was in Revelation, we'd be out of our minds trying to figure out how to taste the Lord. You know, I mean, it's just, you know what I'm saying? Um, but see, now, you know, I can have wine at communion or a glass of wine or something, and it doesn't make me, I don't have to have, there's nothing within me. That old part of me that was addicted to anything that numbed me from reality, it's passed away. It's dead and gone. There's nothing within me that resonates with addiction or putting my dependence upon something besides Jesus. It's just not there. Jesus said the prince of this world comes, but he finds nothing within me. It's just not there. Hallelujah. I am not related to that rat anymore. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. Well, thank God we've had a blood transfusion. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. We're not related to that rat. Thank you, Jesus. Isaiah 28, 15. Now notice what he says. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, or the, the literal word is sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when the Babylonians came in, will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge. We're worshiping the false gods and the idols and all that. And we have concealed ourselves with deception. Now notice the next verse, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Obviously, you know this verse. What New Testament quotes this verse? Who's he talking about? Jesus. So this is related to when the Messiah came. So we can't lift it out of its setting and put it somewhere else, you know. A chief, uh, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And he who believes in him will not be ashamed or disturbed. Um, I will make justice or righteousness the measuring line 
and righteousness the level. Then hell will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Last verse. Your covenant with death will be canceled. All right? And your pact with hell, Sheol, will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through. Then you become its trampling place. I want you to see here, he's talking about at that time, but he's using, it's, you know, it's sort of, I guess, you know, figurative language. Death isn't an entity with which you can draw up a contract or shed blood and make a covenant. It's just, but you get the point that he's making. And anything outside of Jesus is death, right? You know what I'm saying? Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Colossians 3 says, Christ who is our life, all right? So in Jesus is life, no death, light, no darkness. But he's telling them here, the, the Israelites at this time, you're worshiping these false gods. You're bringing these calamities upon yourselves. You're making my holy city a habitation of demons and falsehood and deception and false gods. And you're bringing destruction and death upon yourself. In other words, you've made a covenant with death. And you're supposed to be living in a covenant with me, the living God. All right? And so that's what he's talking about in uh, Revelation chapter 21 there. That there's no more death. That there's no more crying. No more pain. Because everything outside of Jesus is dead to us. Now that doesn't mean you don't live in life. But see, because we, we, we have these... God made this earth and he called it good. Mm -hmm. And even after the fall, in Exodus, in Psalms, in many, many places, <coughs> repeatedly, God declares in the scriptures, the earth is mine. So this earth is meant to be enjoyed. This is, you understand, this is here for our habitation, for our enjoyment, and, and for our relationship with God, and all these types of things. Um, so he canceled the covenant of death here. So when he says no more death, he's talking covenantal language, or spiritual death. Now, again, look at Paul. Repeatedly, through the New Testament letters, when Paul talked about believers dying, he would not call it death, would he? He always called it sleep. Why? Because death was gone. What did Jesus say in John chapter 5? In John chapter 5, whoever believes in me will never die. So let's not misapply this with a modern Western mindset. Let's interpret it with scripture. The covenant of death is gone. Whoever believes in me will never die. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. It's appointed unto man once to die. Jesus died that death for us. Now we never die. Right. Now we'll step out of this body one day, but that's not death. Right. That's just relocation, baby. You know what I'm saying? You just shed this body. Hallelujah. So I hope you can see the point there. The former things are gone. Or have Paul say it. Old things are passed away. Passed away is death language. Old things are dead. Old things are passed away. And I'll just put one more scripture up here. It's not on your paper there. Man, I hope this stuff's making sense. Yeah. 2 Timothy 1.10. He says, But now, talking about Jesus, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who did what? 2 Timothy 1.10. Who abolished death. See? You know, oh, no more death. You know, What's that mean? Well, we have scripture for that. Believe in me, you never die. Old things are passed away. Canceled your covenant with death. Humanity was doing everything it could to continually separate itself from God, 
on its end, not that you can really be separate from God, but you know what I'm saying, to try to run from God and to try to kill ourselves. And God refused to let death, to let Satan, to let our blindness and brokenness and darkness and the fall and ignorance, he refused to let death have the final word. He had the final word by conquering death and literally dying death away. Jesus is the death blow to death. Amen? Hallelujah. Jesus killed death. And he resurrected a new heaven and earth or a new creation into reality. And you know as well as I do, we still have problems and issues and things like this. Uh, we still live, you know, life and, and go through things. Uh, but you know, Jesus is that anchor that's always there, isn't he? Mm -hmm. You know, um, there was this old song I, I used to, the church I grew up in, they used to sing. And I can't sing and I won't try, but I'll just say the verses, you know, um, something like, uh, the God in the good times is still God in the bad times, God in the valleys. Um, you guys know kind of the song I'm trying to sing it with my <laughs> God in the good, yeah, maybe not. Good times is still God in the bad times. I remember that part. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean bad comes from God. It just means, you know. And, and see, again, think with, think with me here. People say, well, Jordan, it can't mean that because it just looks more literal than that. It could. Well, think about Adam and Eve. They lived in a state of what we would in some capacity, what we would think of or, or might refer to as some semblance of perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, now they were still very human. I mean, it's not like Adam, as far as I can tell, was flying from point A to point B, you know, just like Superman. And they were human. You know, in one place, God puts them to sleep. So I, I think that that's a thing. There was the works of his hands. You understand? They were very human, right? Um, and even in that state of perfection, uh, bad things could happen. Because in a state of what we assume, whether it was the whole earth or some people think it was just the garden, um, you know, I make them my image, I give them authority to replenish the earth. In other words, take, which the word Eden means pleasure, which is, of course, based on relationship with God. There is no pleasure outside of God and his way of doing things and all this. Take this and whatever has happened on planet earth, there's main theories, Take it and replenish it with Godness. I've made you my son. Adam's called the Son of God in Luke's genealogies in the Gospel of Luke. Take it and replenish it. Take this dominion I've given you and kick darkness's butt. Well, whatever it was, whether that was you know that was the case or not, there was still a man who was sinless, created in God's image. But even in that condition, uh, temptation, deception lives of the enemy, sin came in. Now we know he could have presumably resisted and get out of here and whatever, but he didn't. My point is simply, even in a state of perfection, darkness, sin, death was allowed to come in. So there's no reason to think Revelation 21, well, Jordan, this looks too literal. It can't mean because it says no death. Well, there was no death in Adam, and yet death could come in. So we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And I think it's most likely that Adam was not created to where he could automatically. I don't think Adam was created innately immortal. All right? 
I think he had to continually partake of whatever the fruit of the tree of life was. Mm -hmm. All right? Um, a sort of conditional mortality. All right? Uh, in other words, because after he sinned, what did God do? Uh, Closed off their access to the tree of life. Mm -hmm. Now we know the Lord said, in the day you partake, you will surely die. We know he lived physically many hundreds of years after that. But that's where sin and spiritual death came in. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. That's another subject for another day. I'm hot. It's hot in here. Josh must be dying over there. Any closing thoughts, questions, or comments? I swore to myself last night, I want to finish tomorrow. We're going to be done with Revelation. But I keep Orla's words to me a few weeks, about a month ago, to take your time. And I get, but I was, I was, thank you. Thank you. I was determined, like, I just, it's a lot. And I know some people, it's, it's probably too much. And, you know, yeah. We'll get, thank you. We'll get the gist of it. And, um, but I hope it helps. Even if we report, you decide, even if you don't agree on every tidbit. And I, Jamie Englehart uh, was at my house, our house last night. He was coming through. And he, most of you know Bishop Jamie. And he was preaching somewhere this morning. So he'd come and stayed with us uh, to save himself, uh, whatever, longer trip in the morning, this morning. Um, but I told him, I, he was like, so when do you preach tomorrow? So I shared it with him, and I was like, but I'm going to do my very best to finish. If I can get through 21, 22 won't take long at all. Just five or 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, just get through it. And he, he instantly laughed and was like, you're not going to do it. Just forget it. <laughs> so, he, he was right. Yeah, he was right. Um, but, but I do hope, and I believe from what most of you have said to me, or many of you have said to me, it's... It's good. Now, even these things about no more death, and I, I believe when we step out of our body and go to heaven, we will experience the full, absolute, all-encompassing reality of that. You know, again, I shared with my, you know, former employer, mentor, Norval Hayes, before he passed away recently, years, years ago, he went to heaven twice. And in heaven, Norval, Brother Norval said, when you breathe in, you literally breathe in the very raw, unfiltered, unhindered presence, glory, and person of God himself. Because his atmosphere permeates the entire, whatever, realm. And he said, and it exhilarates your entire being. He said, you cannot wait to take your next breath. And then he said, the, my favorite part, he said, every next breath is better than the last one. I mean, that, you know, it's just, it's awesome. Boy, aren't you glad this life's but a vapor? I mean, I, I, I don't mean to sound dark and uh, <laughs> there, don't misunderstand me. We're supposed to enjoy this life and whatnot. But, uh, thank God there's a, a, a great beyond after this life. Amen? Amen. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean try to get out of here too soon. I'm just saying, you know, we have a heck, God and Sons Incorporated has a of a retirement plan. <laughs> the Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.